because of his age, and she's... she's age and his medical condition. And I, I guess because of his mental condition, too, yeah. And she's going to have one, but they had to miss tonight. Um, and I, I want to include Mickey in her prayers, and you'll hear why in a second. But let's let's start. Um, so I, I um, we we will. Some people will not be here tonight. I hope everybody else turns up. But anyway, any any prayer requests tonight before we start? I'm looking forward to tonight's class because it's going to touch on, I think, um, real hard things that, that we look past a lot in our life. I, I don't know how you guys are going to come out of this, but I really, I want to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go into deep waters and dark waters. So any prayer request tonight or prayers of Thanksgiving or anything from you guys? Prayers for Gina. For Gina? Her, husband, Gina? her husband passed away suddenly. He's my first cousin. First cousin? Yes. Gina. Okay. Her, her husband passed away. What's and his name? He's my first cousin. So, what's his name? Yeah. Stan. Stan. Um. Tracy, I've been meaning to ask this, and I mentioned, and I, I have, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if your move and and her getting older and I, um, what was her name not um, the young woman you were Madison. Madison Madison yeah how's she doing what's happening with her um, is she doing all right I, I know that those are rough waters for her about the same you know about the same is she on her own now she's still uh, in yeah. no no okay Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, let's see, a couple of serious prayers, Lord. Nikki is, um, she'd been diagnosed, diagnosed with the early stages of breast cancer. Um, and I, I think they're just, she's been struggling trying to coordinate things in her family. So she's not been here for a while. And she wrote a note um, expressing how much she missed us and, um, I miss her, um, but she asked for our prayer. So if all of you would pray for her, please. She's going in for breast surgery on the, I think it's the 21st of January. Um, it's early stages, so everybody's hopeful. And um, the um, the plan now is to is to do the breast surgery then, and then I think she's supposed to undergo um, chemotherapy. Um, some form of treatment for a while afterwards. So if everybody would please pray for her that things go well, um, carry those prayers deep in your heart. She's been here for years and she has been, she's always so quiet. Um, but you, I think you know that she is absolutely deeply engaged in everything we're doing. So um, good heart, good mind, if you would all keep her in your prayers. Um, if we could all pray for also for um, Stan, um, Lord, wash away his sins. Um, receive him into your kingdom. Please hear our prayers for him. Um, they're the prayers that we hope we receive when the day comes and we're not here, that others around us will pick us up and pray for us. So, 
wash away his sins, um, receive him into your presence if there is a time in purgatory. Um, let him know the joy of being his, on his way to you and let our prayers help him. And we offer our prayers too for those who love him, his wife Gina and, and Julie, people who carry him um, and those he loves in their hearts. And we um, want to offer a special prayer for our son Thomas. Um, he did a remarkable thing a week ago that um, um, stunned me. Just a great um, joy to see what he did. So um, thank you for your presence with him, for the small things that so often aren't small. <laughs> Graces come, you know. We, we so often miss them. Graces come in little, sometimes little gestures, but they can break open a world. We know that. So, thank you for your presence with him. And we ask everybody's prayers here in the group for Emily and Jonathan. They never know the sex. They never want to. We don't know if it's a boy or girl. But um, she's going to go in um, for the operation on Friday to deliver pray for us. We're going to have the kids from Wednesday for a week. Um, we will appreciate any donations of boxes of wine. <laughs> anything, anything anybody wants to contribute. Um, anyway, if you would all pray for um, a safe delivery for Emily um, and um, a healthy, normal, well-born, strong baby. Um, and for Jonathan, <laughs> they are they are not getting young. I, Suzanne's comment today because Emily's not young. I mean, they're this is their seventh, and Suzanne and I both think they're out of their minds. But they they are. Um, her comment was when Emily Emily thought about her age. Suzanne's comment was she thought about it once and decided never to think about it again, and Jonathan refuses to think about it. <laughs> So, anyway, pray for our youngest, um, for all that's going to happen to their family in the next few days. So, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing here together. Um, we are looking at hard things and wrestling very often with demons, um, dark, dark things. Julie's question about evil, um, it's right here in front of us in this play. And in our culture in our culture. It's in us we carry it. Strengthen us please in our efforts to put it away, to um, turn to you, to do your will, to give ourselves to what you ask. It's hard for us to do something when we don't see. The words in the church in the Mass, I think today or Saturday was, seeing something help us to do them. Our hope is that we can deepen our sight to see more clearly into things, and with that as a help, um, live differently in the world, be closer to you. Um, we offer these prayers in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to do the, I sent you guys a copy of um, Robinson's um, Isaac and Archibald. It's a long poem. We can't do it. It's just too long.
it's 400 lines. It's about 10 pages, and it would take too long. I think it's probably longer than um, um, Auden's Hore, The Hours. But it's a wonderful poem. It's delightful. It's easy to read. Very, very simple. It's just a simple sixth grade language. But it's full of humor and wit. It's a tender, tender poem. It's about these two brothers who are getting old, seen from the point of view of a 12-year-old. Of a and I, I, I think it came to mind because Suzanne and I are long past that poem where, <laughs> you know, we're, who's going to go first? What's going to happen? And we walk into bedrooms now wondering what we're doing there, looking at each other. Um, I, I'm concerned that one day I'm going to turn up online and you guys are going to wonder who this guy is. I mean, it's just getting so bad. Um, anyway, it's a delightful poem. It's a poem about aging and two men who, are, who, who don't seem to be aware that they're aging and what the effects are. It's a funny, delightful poem. So read it. On your own, please, would you? Um, because what I'd like to do is take a couple of weeks and just go through some of the passages. Uh, I think take two. I won't cover it all. I won't read it all. It's just too long. But I'll see if I can highlight some of the passages, just so you can hear it read. Because just so you know that poetry isn't always T.S. Eliot and Auden. Um, there are some poets who <laughs> really enjoy life. Oh, with, oh God! Oh, save me! Just, oh, oh Suzanne, go for it, girl! <laughs> I, I knew the women on this line would go bonkers over that. Just so you know, Robinson is one of the darkest. I'm not kidding. One of the darkest poets, beginning of the 20th century. Luke Havoc, all of his poetry. Um, what's the and the the one who um, I can't remember the poem about the guy who commits. Um, Richard Corey commits suicide. It's, he, there's a, he's, he's a New England poet, poet, and he belongs to that Protestant eastern seaboard when the Protestant faith is declining, but it's left the intellectuals with this dark view. Um, so the, 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 the poetry that he's most known for, that I think is extraordinary, I, I think I've read one of the poems that I thought was prophetic, very, very dark. Um, um, but this poem is tender and understated in its ironies. It's, it's a very, it's just a good poem. So if you guys would read it, I'm going to go through the poems and see if I can just pick out some passages that make it possible for us to, to use it for our lyrics for a couple of weeks, okay? But tonight I wanted to read the poem. Um, it's, it's been one of my favorites forever since I first began to you know, come out of my sleep and understand poetry. It, this is early on in my life, and or you know, when I went to college, and um, my goodness, um, it 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 made me realize that poetry was doing something. I I didn't grow up with this, so it just knocked me off my feet. And Ben Johnson. Um, this poem has been a favorite of mine from the very beginning. This is Ben Jonson. He's a contemporary of Shakespeare and um, Milton and John Donne. He's, he's writing in the Renaissance. And I think you know from the little bit of work we've done on it that the Renaissance is a kind of reawakening of, of the possibilities of language, what it can do to help us see things. It's an instrument for 
looking at reality and, um, and discovering the beauty in it because whenever we read a poem, we always experience a beauty, an order, a music, but it always gives us an insight. It, it's like a light shining on some aspect of reality that, that becomes so clear and with a feeling that's sort of exquisite because it's so fine. I mean, the good poets do that. Ben Johnson was one of the simplest poets. There were poets who were very ornate and elaborate like Milton, and they knew it. And there was a part of the Renaissance tradition that was very simple. Um, it's called a sort of native tradition. Poets who were writing out of a, um, a sense of the, the importance of the spoken word and the simple things in life. So his, his poems are all um, very simply written. This is called On My First Son. It's about the death of his child. Um, I'm going to read it twice, just so you can hear it. Part of the beauty of this poem is he's lost his son. This is his first son. And the, the beauty of it for me is that losing his son isn't just an occasion of grief for him. It's a moment of being chastised because he realizes in that moment his love was too great. That all everybody's going to die. And while we're here, we're asked to love things as we should. And some, you know from Dante and what we've done, sometimes we can love things too much. Sometimes we can love things not enough. Johnson would have known all of this. He's just a very practiced poet. So um, the beauty of this poem is the grief that he expresses and the feeling of being chastised, that he carries away this mixture, this tension. So... I'd like everybody just to hold on to that as um, you know when the when I'm finished with the reading of it. Ben Johnson on my first son. Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou were lent to me, and I thee pay. God gives us things as a gift; we're not to possess them. Um, they're given in our keep. We're meant to care for them, to help them go to him. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou were lent to me, and I thee pay. Exacted by thy fate on the just day. Everything is according to God's will. Oh, could I lose all father now? For why will man lament the state he should envy? He's leaving the world. We should be glad. To have so soon escaped worlds and flesh's rage, and of no other misery... Yet age, rest in soft peace, and asked, say, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such as what he loves may never like too much. So this this theme of God offering something, it's in our care, it's for a time given to us. We're meant to offer it back. Um... So all of that's carried in this moment of grief. And part of the beauty is that he compares whatever he's done with his son, with his poetry. He's tried to do everything he can as a father, you know, to love this son. Um, one of the reasons I chose it is because fatherhood is going to be major to um, libation bearers. To me, it's the dominant theme, the, the um, grief um, um, holding on to the line of the Father and trying to avenge it. But this is from a Christian point of view. 
And this is from the point of view of the father losing the son, not the other way around. So it's a very, very different view of the relationship between a father and his child. Very, very Christian. Very Christian. So it gives us a sentiment of um, a kind of feeling that um, Aeschylus obviously wouldn't have. So those are some of the you know, the subtle things going on. Here. Let me read it once now through and not comment. So you can just enjoy the poem, okay? On my first son. Farewell, thou child of my right hand, and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou were lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I lose all father now, for why will man lament? the state he should envy, to have so soon scaped worlds and flesh's rage, and if no other misery, yet age. Rest in soft peace and ask, say, here doth lie Ben Johnson his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much. My first son. Uh, One of my favorite I just, poems. I just like. This is Julie. I just like to. Sh- sh- I lost my son um, when he was nineteen, and this was the most beautiful poem for me, and so <laughs> touching and meaningful to me. And I read it to my husband, and he cried. Yeah. So. Yeah, I have a time. I have a hard time holding it together. I don't know if you heard it, but I have a hard time reading this. Um, so. Tell your husband, I'm glad we could have done this together. Okay, let's go to darker, darker things. I want to um, underline um, two two points that are going to be important for everything we're doing tonight. Um, A couple of things that are background, I think I'll probably touch on them on my notes, but I I want to give a special emphasis by um, speaking to them um, here at the beginning. (coughs) Sorry. Um, Two things, and absolutely important to get a hold of. Most of the criticism, and I've not not read a lot of criticism on on the works, Aeschylus, but I've read enough to be skeptical of the modern temper, because the modern temper is, for the most part, rationalistic. And, and I, I hope you're, the meaning of that term for you is a little bit clear because I've used it often. Rationalism for me means reason that's not rooted in something real, not in nature, not a faith. Reason by itself can destroy itself. We can kill ourselves and have reasons for doing it. Reason is insufficient in itself. When reason isn't rooted in nature, if it doesn't have a frame of reference in nature, or in a faith that rests in, relates to nature, it becomes what I would call rationalistic. It's the head in its own world. Ideologies produce systems that are rationally logical, but they're rationalistic. They're, they're not rooted in reality. So there's some goodness that they offer, and it seems to be the truth of something, what, what makes them worse is they seem so truthful when they're just missing. There's something they miss. Um, and most readings of ancient literature tend to be rationalistic. 
they read the ancient world through modern ideologies and and they turn things to fit them um, you, you you know at least from my perspective I think it's important that we always try to go back enter that world submit make an act of submission enter that world as as fully as we can to try to enter the world of another to 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 learn something about the world from that. So one of the first responsibilities we have as, as readers of literature is to try to enter that world, put away you know, our own prejudices and assumptions and learn to see that world on its own terms. There's two things I want to highlight tonight along those lines. One is the Greeks didn't live in a police state. I wrote a note to you just before class. I don't know if you had time to look at it. They didn't live in a police state. We do. We've turned all matters of crime over to the police. We think by distancing ourselves from crime, um, we're more likely to attain a justice than if we took those matters into our own hand all the time. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you guys don't watch movies the way I do, but 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood dealing with justice don't, don't end with justice being answered, they, they, end, they end on a note of vengeance. They're always taking vengeance, which means more than justice. They're getting back, and they're always bringing more than justice. That's, that's, it just seems to me it's one of the aspects of the modern world. We've got a police state, and the police doesn't always adequately deal with things. It can't. Its machinery's too dull. You, you can't get into a family with the law without feeling in some ways you're intruding because the family ties are so deep. They're so complex. But we live in a police state. They didn't. At that time, there was no way to answer a crime except by taking it on yourself. And those closest to the ones hurt or killed were the ones most given the responsibility. Can you get the Odyssey? Um, so if somebody was killed, somebody in the family would have been expected to answer that in a blood code. Blood for blood. Um, we saw that in the Iliad, we saw it in the Odyssey, um, and we're seeing it here. If Orestes is going to be a man, he can't overlook what happened to his father. We, we, that was one of the major themes of the Odyssey. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it. I'm, I want to I look at it in, concretely in a moment, but just as a principle, I'd like to put that out. So in that world... Um, people had um, to take justice into their hands to answer it. And we know from that world that very often when people did it, they could commit a sacrilege. They could overdo it. So while they had the gods supporting them to answer it, if they were just, Achilles, Odysseus were just men, according to that world, um, then it was good. A person was one with the divine order. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas were all dealing with evils, serious evils, and had to do something other men couldn't. It's one of the things we took away from our work on the ancient epics. Um, if they went too far, the, like, the likelihood is they'd offend a god and some wrong would continue in some form. That's the issue of um, the Oristia that these wrongs have been committed and every attempt to answer them leads to another wrong and it creates this cycle of vengeance. That's what the poem is about. 
okay? But it's important to remember that the justice then was in the hands of people. We don't look at things that way, so I think it's hard for us to, you know, to um, step out of our mindset to make a place for that because we're so used to living in a system of justice in which the system goes to work for us. So it asks for um, a real stepping back and effort to detach ourselves, to go back into that world. The second is a more abstract notion that I want to just leave everybody with because I think it's central to this poem. I think the most important scene in this poem is the moment when the chorus describes Clytemnestra's dream. I, I want to get to that because it, it, it's nothing happens. I mean, as Mark said, nothing happens. And yet, the action of the whole poem turns on that moment absolutely turns, and I just think it's larger than it is, and I want to get back to this. But to, to, to try to do justice to it, I want to put out this notion. St. Thomas, in the beginning of the Summa Theologica, talks about his methods. He sets out his method before he starts answering questions, or asking them. And at one point he says, um, um, words mean something. Words have a meaning. Tree refers to a thing. A bottle or a glass of wine. That wine that one of you is holding right now looks really tasty to me. <laughs> wine like means? I slipped instead of the word glass, you started with the word bottle. <laughs> <laughs> um, words refer to things, they mean. But here's the interesting thing for Thomas. He said, not only do words mean, but things mean as well. Because the God who created them is always present in them. So, for in Saint, Th we've talked about this before. In Saint Thomas's word world, things revealed God, the meaning of Him. In fact, Saint Thomas saw the Trinity. And this is too deep to go in here, but the Trinity in everything in the world. So every every single thing, not, nothing accepted. Every single thing in creation had these three order, order. Order, God, order, end, and purpose, I think. It's been a while since I've looked at that. But it's those three qualities that are present in any good thing. So for St. Thomas, the, the creator is present in his creation. When we read Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, the wind hover. Um, I can't remember some of the other poems right now that come to mind. Oh, the, the Kingfisher's Catch Fire, you know, with the with the bells ringing and everything speaking. He says, everything in nature tells. It tells Christ. He's the creator. So that whole poem is showing that things mean. So for St. Thomas, words refer to things, but things themselves refer to something else. They mean. And, it, and they always, it's impossible to get to their meaning without relating them to other things. You can't look at a tree in isolation. A tree doesn't exist in isolation. A tree only exists under the sunlight, in the ground, with root, you know. All of us exist in relationship. And all of us attempt to find meaning in what we do with each other. And according to our faith, it should help us to see God more clearly in all that's going on in our life. That was the great theme of Boethius' Consolation. So things mean. And I just want to underscore that. Um, at the very beginning of the poem when Orestes appears 
he takes a lock that he's cut off and put it on his father's grave. And when Electra comes, she says, something just happened here. She's only saying that because she's relating to a world of things that mean something. There's a piece of lock there. And strangely, it matches her hair. So the question that it raises for her is, was Orestes around? She will, she will look around and she'll see footprints that almost match her own. So there are two signs, the hair and the footprints, that are pointing to something more. So one of the themes of the, of the work is that words mean and things mean. And if we're looking past them, we're being blind because there's a meaning to things, even if, they, even if there isn't always a lot of action. <laughs> okay, things mean. <laughs> it's important for us to pay attention, um, okay? Because the modern world, particularly after science, because things tend to have meaning only as abstractions in terms of probability or mathematics. Um, they certainly don't reveal God because that would, that would refer them to, to an order higher than the sciences can appreciate. Yet so much of the literature we've read is referring us exactly to that order, that there's a divine order. Science can't answer questions about God. Um, so two of the major things, okay? Um, just to have in your mind as we go through this. I want to, um, 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 as a just a re quick review, as a as background stuff again, I want to go back to some of the important allusions or references um, um, that are important for this work. And book one of the Odyssey, chapter one, sorry, chapter one, line twenty-five. You remember the the gods have met. Odysseus has been on the island of um, Calypso for years. Hermes is going to go free him. And Athena is going to go to Ithaca to be with Telemachus. Um, they're, 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 it's exactly what Dante does with Mary and Lucia Beatrice when they go to get Dante. Dante's in danger. A divine order is set in motion to go help him. The Odyssey begins with the gods setting in motion a plan that's going to help answer these disorders. Telemachus at home, Odysseus at sea. Okay, And this is, this is what happens at the beginning. The gods are in council, the very first pages. But Poseidon was gone now. Sorry. Poseidon was gone now to visit um, the fat Ethiopians, most distant of men who live divided, some at the setting of Hyperion, some at his rising, to receive a hecatomb of bulls and rams. There he sat at the feast and took his pleasure. Meanwhile, the other Olympian gods were gathered together in the halls of Zeus. First among them to speak was the father of gods and mortals, for he was thinking in his heart of stately Agisthus. That's Clytemnestra's lover. He helped her kill Agamemnon, whom Orestes, Agamemnon's far-famed son, had murdered. Remembering him, he spoke now before the immortals. Oh, for shame how the mortals put the blame on us gods for, 
For they say evils come from us, but it is they rather who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond what's given. Um, the gods praise Orestes for having taken vengeance on his, for his father's murder. One of the problems of the Odyssey is, um, is, lies with um, Telemachus. The question he's facing that he would have felt, and I hope we felt when we went through it, is um, he, had, he had to take responsibility for what's going on on his father's estate. And he knows Orestes put his life at risk to avenge his father. Is Telemachus going to have the courage that Orestes had because Orestes now has this reputation of being this really good son? The central theme of Hamlet, you all know this, is Hamlet being asked by his father to avenge his death. To do that, Hamlet's going to have to kill his uncle. And he's going to have to do it on the basis of a private revelation. That the, the really the amazing thing about Hamlet, we talked about this when we did it, that's a Reformation play. The basis of that play is Hamlet receiving a private revelation. It's very Lutheran, very Calvinistic. And on the basis of that private revelation, he's got to act in the political realm. The problem he's facing, if he goes and kills his um, uncle... They're going to accuse him of, the people are going to accuse him of regicide. And he's going to say, are you nuts? This guy killed my dad. Um, a ghost told me so. <laughs> They're going to say he's nuts. You know, that he's mad. Um, he has, that is, he has no ground in the natural order for what he's about to do. So we, here we are, you know, 500, 400 years before Christ, a young man facing um, the problem of having to avenge his father's death. So we have, we have works like um, the Odyssey, Hamlet. We have the books of the Old and New Testament. And one of, the, one of the most important things running through the Old Testament is the line of the Father. Because the line passes down through the Father. He's the one who inseminates, who plants the seed. It's in the Father's name that these things are done. That was absolutely crucial for the New Testaments. They had to show that, in fact, Christ came from the line of the Father. And as we all know, that line itself, beginning with Father Abraham, he's called Father Abraham. From him to Jacob, from Jacob to David, to David to... That line began with the Father. We are his children. We, we acknowledge the Father's original place in the Trinity. Christ is consubstantial with him. He wasn't made... He's one with the Father. What differentiates the two is that the Father's original, not in time. Christ is consubstantial. But he is the Father. His son is, he's Christ, the Son is a son by virtue of that relationship. So this notion of fatherhood is absolutely crucial in our tradition. And it's one that's been virtually lost in our time for a number of reasons. Okay. Some of the modern influences that show these, um, we talked about it in Faulkner's The Found in the Sound of the Fury. The father is a waste. The son's going to commit suicide, finally. That's a, it's an inversion of the, but the house is going mad. It's the, um, it's the Compson house is a, an image of an aristocratic family, a noble family in disintegration. It's going to hell. 
um, the Father or the Son will take his life. And go down Moses. Um, you remember that Ike reaches a point where he recognizes how heinous the sins of the father are, the grandfather and the father, that he renounces the land. He, it's his effort to try to put away that sin. And at the end of the play, if you remember when Gavin Stephen goes to visit Molly, the, the black woman, they're singing that dirge. Pharaoh sold my Benjamin, sold my Benjamin into Egypt. Pharaoh sold my Benjamin, go down Moses. Um, both Electra and Orestes use the word sold. Clytemnestra sold their patrimony. One of the reasons Clytemnestra gives for getting Orestes out of the way is that he was young. She wanted to protect him from all that was happening. It, I mean, one of the questions we have to ask is whether that was her only motive or whether she wanted him out of the way because he was the heir. He was the heir to his father's line. And there's every indication, everything she and um, Aegisthus, everything that they do isn't, to, isn't for power. They want the seed of that power, both of them. The Agamemnon ends on that note. They both want power. Um, Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, it, his treatment of the chorus in that book, which is about murder, the, the priest, the father, the chorus sees so much, but it won't act like the chorus here. So in lots of mod, the really great modern, these, <laughs> these dark poets like um, T.S. Eliot and... <laughs> and others. <laughs> yeah, they were all, they all had the Oristai in them. There's not a one of them that didn't read that and take it to heart. It's one of the major founding works of Western civilization. So we're watching a, um, um, a tradition carried forward. The modern Protestant world has done away with the Father. Um, they um, deny the Pope, the Father. Um, the scientific world does away, it just looks at as the two sexes as mating, you know, like any other animal. So the authority of the father is, um, is not only at risk, but in, in a sense, damn, I just think the place of the mother and father in the modern world is terribly wounded, terribly wounded. It's almost impossible to find a, a movie dealing with a father that doesn't either treat him as a buffoon or a tyrant. He's really bad or he's stupid. And very often it's the same thing for mothers. Um, you know, the state of parenthood um, is, it's, um, it's troubled, um, it's deeply troubled in our age. So those are just some of the background themes that have carried forward in our time. I, I wanna just identify the themes for a moment before we, but before we go any farther, any, any questions or comments on anything said so far up to this point? It's always good to me, you all. <clears throat> okay, let's go on. Some of the great themes. Um, this goes back to what I said earlier about the absence of a police state, but it, I, I hope it goes a step deeper. 
One of the most important things for us to see about the Greek world that the modern world has no notion of is something that I can only put like this. The Greeks had this sense that the gods were everywhere in nature. They're closer to St. Thomas in saying all things signify God. They show him in some way. They believed that everything in nature showed the gods, the trees, the river, the sky, the plants, it doesn't matter. It would have been almost impossible for a human being not to offend somebody because in their presumption, they overlooked things. They took things for granted. One of the most important things that we learned from the ancient epics and from you know, works like um, Aeschylus' Oresti or, or Sophocles' trilogy is the Greeks believed it was very important to give back. They had, they, they had this sense um, they didn't create themselves. They were there by virtue of the gods, that they had descended from the gods, and they owed them something. So the people who are who are too proud are the ones who generally suffer, like the suitors or, Achis, or Achilles' companions or the lots of the um, warriors in the Iliad. Um, and we saw in the Iliad that very often men make sacrifices to the gods for the wrong reason. They want to buy them off. So men are constantly in danger. It's as if the ancient world had this sense of what we would call the fall. There was something wrong. We owed the gods something and felt it was our place to give something back to them. Where we didn't, we were in trouble. So the ancient world had, is super sensitive, super aware of this spirit of presumption, of taking the gods for granted. Okay, So they were really very conscientious of, of whether what they were doing was in accord with the gods or going against them. So it's not uncommon for people to be presumptuous. The great danger is if not only if they overlook the gods, but if they presumed on them, and Julie, this goes to your question. If it doesn't answer it, come back. But Clytemnestra is evil principally. I mean, she does a lot of evil, but it seems to me the, the principal explanation of her evil is her blasphemy. She uses the gods. She lies. She deceives. Agamemnon, when he sacrifices his daughter, is being obedient to the gods. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute because I know that's a troubling thing for most readers, but he, he's, in a, he's in a different situation. Um, he's obeying the gods. I'll, I'll come back to that. Clytemnestra's not. She, she, um, she puts on a performance. She's, she's playing a role. She's posturing. Um, she's presenting herself as doing one thing when, as a matter of fact, she's doing another. And she even uses the gods to back her up. She says she's waiting for her husband. She wants nothing to happen to him. And I believe in her heart of hearts that she really means that. She doesn't want anything to happen to him because she wants to kill him. I mean, the, the spite, the sense of vengeance in her is so deep. So she's, she's not only committing a wrong like, like the men do. She's making it worse because she's actually using the gods, flying in the face of them as if what she's doing isn't treacherous. That makes her evil worse. So in, in this world... We're not in a Christian world now. We're in a pagan world. Anytime somebody went against the divine order, and particularly if they did it consciously to use the gods for themselves, 
and we, we see that happen often in the works that we've read, they're doing something evil. Clytemnestra is evil in that sense. Um, so the theme of presumption, you know, it goes back to Tantalus when he cut up his children um, and served them to the gods to test them. I mean, the act of hubris behind that to me is so deep, and that act gets passed on to Pelops, his son, and then Atreus. Remember, Atreus and his brother Thyestes fought, and when Atreus, Agamemnon and Menelaus' father, when Atreus learned that he'd been betrayed, um, he cut up Thyestes' kids and served them to him. When Thyestes um, learned that, he put a curse on the house, and that's the curse that we're experiencing now. It's the horror that Cassandra sees repeated when, you know, when Clytemnestra goes into the house to kill Agamemnon. So we're watching a family curse an evil that at its root is an expression of the presumption of the gods. That men think they're so good that they don't have to take seriously this divine order. That's, that's the great sin, the great evil. Um, I don't want to go back to the, the episode in the Agamemnon, but just briefly, for the sake of reviewing here, you remember that in the Agamemnon, the way it was presented, if I'm recalling this correctly, um, all the ships had already gathered at Aulis. Agamemnon was, um, was the lead king in an exposition against Troy. And everybody understood that it was in accord with Zeus's will because what Paris had done was a great offense against Zeus, the, 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 the rights of hospitality, to welcome the stranger, um, to take care of those rights. Um, Paris violated them. It was a viola it's a violation against Zeus, and it was a violation against the marriage rights. He took Helen back. So all of them undertook this expedition believing that they were, they were doing Zeus's will, that they had Zeus behind them. All the ships had gathered. So there's no dilemma at that point. None. They're undertaking a war believing that they have to um, do a justice, restore a justice by going against Troy. And the understanding was because, because Priam gave his permission to it, it would be the destruction of a city. The whole city was enabled. It's like America going down, or, or, or let it be Jerusalem. Let it be Judah or Jerusalem when the Babylonians took it over, the captivity. We have instances in which God's city, um, God gave up because they had so turned against him, and he let them go into the hands of somebody else. America isn't, I, I mean, I believe that in some ways we're on the threshold of that ourselves right now. But, but cities go under because cities that were once dedicated to God turn away from him and leave themselves vulnerable. That's what happens in Troy. That's the Trojan War. Um, Aeschylus knew that well. The interesting thing about the setup for what's going on here in the Oristaya is that all the ships have gathered at Aulis to go to Troy, but a wind holds them up. And while they're there, they're eating, and they kill a rabbit. You remember the description. They killed a rabbit, and the rabbit is bearing babies. And um, Artemis, who's the goddess of natural things, is so offended that she demands a sacrifice. 
It's Calchas, the bird, the prophet, who recognizes that tie with Artemis and says that she demands a sacrifice. And it, and it has to be the king, the king's daughter, and it has to be somebody pure. I don't want to go into that. I just think, I think we've entered a world of profound mysteries. I mean, all I'm doing is just describing them. One of the thoughts that I have, and I'm glad to, you know, open this to any, anybody has any other thoughts. One of the interesting things about that sacrifice for me is that it's the king who has to pay it. He's the leader. He's the one who will, who will suffer the greatest cost. And it, it, it's always left me with this question. Um, symbolically, is her sacrifice um, giving us some indication of what the greatest sacrifice will be for the war? The greatest sacrifice of the war will be those who are innocent and women. They'll be the ones to suffer the most. The men are going to be killing each other with this pride that they have, carrying out the, these abstract notions of justice. It's something they have to do, but there's always a cost. And it's, in, it's always been interesting to me that the cost here is a virgin daughter. It's as if she images one of the greatest costs of every war. It will be the innocent, the virgins, the, you know. But those are, um, anybody have any other thoughts? I'm glad to go there. But the point I want to make here is um, Agamemnon only faces a dilemma after the ships are already gathered, not before. They're already committed to the war. What happens is that the men's offend the gods because they kill this rabbit. It, to me, it's just another indication that there's almost nothing they... The, the Iliad started this way. If you go back to your notes, remember I said, they don't even know that they're committing these sins when Agamemnon doesn't accept the, the ransom. They don't know. They're offending the gods, the priests. They do this with a sense that what they're doing is right, and they don't see that there's this sin they committed. Christianity deepens it because what we learn in Christianity is we, we carry the same presumption, but it's greater. We killed God. Not only did we disobey him in the beginning, but when his son came to redeem us, we killed him. So the presumption on the part of man in the literature that we've read, pagan and Christian, is pretty consistent on this thing. It just gets deeper with Christianity. The sins get deeper, the cost of redeeming them gets deeper, greater. Bob, yeah. This is Julie again. Um, I just I think about Clytemnestra and Agamemnon killing her daughter. To me, that um, the effect on her. He killed her daughter. <laughs> I know, Julie. Let me just ask you a question. I mean, I I I I'm trying to. If if you hear me, I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid these things and still try to make a place for them. What do you think Sarah's response would have been if Abraham had killed Isaac and she and he came home and said, Yahweh told me to? Ah, uh, I see where you're going now. It doesn't mean you have to get revengeful and start. Hers was probably more acceptance. More what? Yeah. More acceptance than I, and you don't think what? so? Say again, Doc, what? I didn't hear your word. What's the word acceptance. you used? Acceptance? Go ahead, Doc. I think she would have killed Abraham. 
Oh. <laughs> wait, come okay. back. Come back. Wait, wait, I've got a question. Doc, come back because I've got a question for you. Last week we were talking about this because we were talking about the um, the differences between men and women. It's one of the reasons I referred everybody back to the Bible and the differences between Adam and Eve. But I'd just like a minute with this. Um, Agamemnon has to make a sacrifice. The gods ask it of him. So whatever we, whatever is moderns, we think about that. Agamemnon. He he sacrifices his daughter. Um, when Clytemnestra takes vengeance on her husband, she's not doing it in obedience to the gods. Um, she's not even doing it with a sense of justice. There's a deep, um, something very personal that doesn't relate to the gods at all. So the motives are very different. We're looking at a very different character. And Suzanne and I were talking about it last week when, when we got off the pro, or the, our class time together. Can you just, can you recall what you said, Doc, and why? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. I remember you were saying that, um, if I can recall this for a second, that, um, so we have four children. When Suzanne gave birth to the first one, she said that, say what you said, Doc, that for the next few years uh, afterwards, when you look back at that moment. I was, I was remembering that when the kids were little, as in four and under probably, or five and under, that um, I was startled at the, um, at the mama bear in me. You, you didn't mess with my kids. Um, now, when they got a little bit older, if a teacher said something, you know, they didn't behave, or um, a neighbor's, you know, a mother in a, in a, of a neighboring child said something, I would always ask them to be responsive to the teacher or the parent. Um, but when they were little, you, you did not mess with the kids. As they got older, that calmed down. But I was really startled at the protective instinct um, when they were really young. Um, I hadn't expected that at all. If I can add a, just a note to that, because I, I think there's a truth to what Suzanne's saying. Um, a, a woman, um, um, as one of the differences between men and women, I mean, some of you may disagree with her, maybe all of you will. Men are, men are by nature, uh, by the way, I think both of these have dangers. If they, if they both don't learn to make a place for the other, I think there's a real danger. Men by nature are far more abstract. They don't, they don't grow up with a womb or breasts. There's something less nurturing and they're far more detached. Men are more ready to let their kids struggle a little bit to suffer. I think the instinctive response of a woman is get out of harm's way. She's far more protective. A woman carries a child in her womb for nine months. It's a part of her physical being. Um, she nurses that child when that child is helpless. She goes through a long period of time of protecting it. So I think there's a strong instinct in women to be protective of women or of children. If it continues into adulthood, if they don't learn to step back, I think all of us know that protectiveness can become harmful. It can become poss possessive. Look what I'm doing for you. Men and women both have to learn to love and let, I mean, Ben Johnson's poem to me is <laughs> has a beauty because it's it it's so in keeping with that spirit but there's something very personal and it can be possessive 
when we look at the difference between Clytemnestra and, and um, Agamemnon, one of the differences is that he's doing it out of different motives. That's the way the play presents him. Um, she isn't. Um, her motives are very different, and there's something blasphemous in them as well. Christianity is going to, I think, take this on head on because we're asked to love our kids the way he did, or love anybody, even enemies. Put that on, love enemies. Um, so that we're asked to love somebody completely, whatever their rank, I mean, we're going to love our family more than strangers, and also put ourselves away to somehow die, um, which means asking some things of our kids sometimes that are not going to be easy or that they're not going to like. So in this Greek world, we're just seeing this, you know, um, in its depths, I think, in its darkest depths, we're seeing what can happen, you know, um, when you're dealing with these things. And right now what we're dealing with is this family sin that's being passed on from generation to generation. It's exactly what, it's one of the things that Christ is going to answer. Because you remember in the Old Testament, the understanding was that if there were sins, they, um, they were a product of fathers. The sins of the fathers carried on. And Christ came to do away with that. When I mean, some people looked at leprosy as if it, as if it were the consequences of a sin, and Christ came to put that away. Um, so we're looking at um, this family curse being carried on, these wounds, and the different ways in which people respond to them. They're different orders of sin. Um, another interesting theme that's related to that one is the way in which um, Agam or Aeschylus presents the, the different characters and different roles of men and women. Helen's at the center of the war. She's partly the cause of it. Clytemnestra is cunning. She's deceitful. She's manipulative. She's blasphemous. Cassandra is none of those. She's a slave. She's been taken. She has no aspirations of power at all. Clytemnestra is taken by power. She wants power. She doesn't want just vengeance or justice. She wants power. There's something personally arrogant and spiteful. I mean, just mean. Um, Cassandra is a slave. She knows nothing of the aspirations of power. She has no ambitions. And she's, she's the one, she's the only one in the whole play who sees the meaning of the whole. The only other one who does it is um, Aeschylus, the poet. She sees everything when she when she when um, Agamemnon goes into the house. She's the only one that sees times layered, that what happened in that mythic past is reoccurring now. So it's not linear. One one event happening and then another succeeding it. She sees a simultaneity of times meeting, so the past and the present are. Um, are in front of her. Um, the, the role of the chorus is interesting. Um, unlike the chorus in Agamemnon, this chorus is made up of women. And all of them, all of them want to see Clytemnestra killed. All of them are affirming, supporting the line of the man because it's through the male line that things are passed on. Um, um, they see, in, in fact, a number of times, they're prophetic. They can see things other characters don't see. 
but they don't act. One of the typical characteristics of choruses in the Greek world is they, they, they represent the common man. There's a lot that they see, but they, they never engage in the action because to engage in the action is costly. People are at risk. That was true of um, Eliot, Murder of the Cathedral. It's true of all the Greek plays. It's true here. Orestes is going to put his life... He has to do something brave. And the emotional consequences of that are going to be horrible, horrific. The course always sees a lot, but they don't risk... They don't put their lives at risk acting. Um, and they're all women, so... So just a couple of things to keep in mind here, and I, um, then I'd like to turn to the, to the poem, to, to the drama. One is that in Aeschylus knows Homer. He knows the Iliad really well. You know from our reading of the Iliad that the focus of the Iliad is this inherent dignity that man has. That all these men are living by this honor code. They're killing each other right and left. They're using it as an excuse for booty. They're all justifying what they do because they get paid. They can take all, the stronger they are, the more booty they get. That war's gone on for 90 years, nine half years. It's not going to stop. If Achilles didn't do what he did, that war would go on. It, 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 in fact, it's still continuing, I think, today. Achilles is the one who steps out of it and comes back and does things he never did before. We've gone through that. The focus of the Iliad is individual honor. It's this inherent worth in the individual. It's, it's one of the reasons I think it's a founding work of Western civilization. The East doesn't see it. It's too tribal. It's too vested in the tribe. Prime in his line. What emerges in the Iliad is that there's this individual dignity. There's something in man that's transcendent that relates to an order of the gods. And when Achilles comes to that moment, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He gives up the world. He accepts his death. Nobody can touch him. It's about individual honor. The Oresti is not. Aeschylus knew the Iliad. He knew Homer. The focus of the Oresteia is the father, the line of the father, and its importance for the continuity of the world. And what we learn, if you put the whole trinity together, is that the importance of that, the place of the father, um, what happens to him is going to depend on what happens in that larger world of the city in Athens. It will not happen in Argos. So one of the, one of the things that, is, that Aeschylus <coughs> is showing us is this shift movement away from this old dynastic world to something more impersonal. This farmer protective of it can help the family achieve its ends without letting the family destroy itself. That's where we're going in the um, humanities. So the focus here isn't on the individual, it's on the father. Um, Aristotle gives some support to this in the natural order because he says the, the line goes through the father, the intellect, ruling the passions, because it's the man who inseminates. A woman can't get pregnant without you know, the male um, and we know how, how abused that is today. Men don't take, I mean, it's sort of, it's not sort of, it's scary, it's frightening. Women are, um, what was the figure? 129 abortions every minute? 121. 121 abortions. An hour. An 
hour. An hour. 121 abortions an hour. The central image at the beginning of this play is kids getting mutilated. The central image is kids getting cut up, mutilated. If any of you have seen the movie Unplanned, which to me is, I mean, I've, I'm writing a book because I've got serious criticisms of it, but it's the most graphic presentation of abortion that I've ever seen, and it's an overpowering, I mean, it, it couldn't be more anti-abortion. It, it just shows in an unsettling way. It's just hard to watch without crying. You watch what happens in abortion. Kids get mutilated. They're mutilated through these tubes. and So where are the fathers? Where are the fathers of these kids? Where the hell are you? Um, so the, the state of parenthood, of what's going on in our country, is terribly disguised because we're so distant from it. And yet, it's going on, right, 121 abortions a minute. No, hour. Oh, sorry, an hour in our country. So... In one sense, Aeschylus is going to a principle of life between a father and a mother, a father and a son, and something that has to happen in order for that relationship not to become self-destructive, which is the way it's been for so many for so many generations. So let me stop here. Um, I want to I want to just take on a couple of readings and then go to some what to me are some of the major questions that I have about the play, but. Any comments or any thoughts about any of this from you guys? Anything you want to add or disagree with or anything? Mark, go. I have a question. And, and perhaps as you talk about all this, maybe you could answer it. They spent quite a lot of time talking to and praying to the gods. What is the overall significance of that? Because, I mean, they did it just about every page. I mean, right. either the, the girls are praying, or he's right. praying, or right. she's praying, or somebody's praying. Yeah. Um, so, so what is the overall significance and the meaning of that that we don't see today that they would have seen then? So you don't have to answer it now, but is it kind of... No, 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 I'm glad to. I mean, I'd like everybody to take a minute. Anybody want to... I'd be glad for anybody to take that on. Tracy, what's your answer to that? Well, you said the chorus sees a lot. So if everything in nature uh, embodies a god or the gods, then that's all they can see, right? And so naturally they would invoke the gods that permeate everything and their role right. as seers and kind of sayers. Right, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? You know, we're not too far. It, the Catholic Church is an amazing church. God, you know, um, we go to church. We try to go every morning that they, that they offer Mass. People are in the pews praying all the time when you go to morning Mass. Somebody's always saying the rosary. When we leave Mass, people are saying the rosary. We know that people say the rosary. Jonathan, which just shocked me. I'm so proud of our youngest son. God bless. He called today to ask. They were going to bring the kids on Friday, and I talked with Emily last week and said, think seriously about keeping the kids out of school. She wasn't going to do it because of school. My response is, are you nuts? Get real. Um, you're about to have a baby. You've got seven kids and your husband, which means eight. <laughs> um, 
get real. Take the kids. They're, they're not going to lose anything if they miss a day of school. Come Wednesday, it clears Thursday for you to, you know, to get ready. Friday morning, you're, you know. So John then called a day and said, can we bring them Wednesday? And Suzanne said, sure. And his comment was um, that we say the rosary on Sunday night with them. We would not have planned to do that. They're, they're, they've reached a point in their lives where they're saying the rosary every weekend with our kids. I'm so proud of them. Suzanne and I say prayers through the day. All I can say is I need it. Um, I wouldn't be doing it if, you know, I didn't do it 20 years ago. We've been doing this for a long time. It seems to me the, the, more, you re, the more you realize the, the plight that we're in and, and that the root of it is our estrangement from God, the only way we're going to get right with each other is by you know, standing with him. I mean, that's the, our original sin, our, the origin of all our sins go back to him. So, I mean, the short answer to your prayer, I mean, your question, Mark, is the Greeks had that sense that moderns don't, that as um, Tracy was reminding us, I mean, I made the point earlier, the gods are everywhere. There's, there's nothing you can do. It's the people who presume, who think they can go on as if they don't need to do thing with the gods, who are the ones who are most in trouble. The chorus is, the women in the chorus are good women. Electra is good. Orestes is good. The nurse is good. And all of them are constantly praying. It, it, I mean, it's a, I'm so glad for your question. It's just an indication of how closely connected they are with the divine order. Um, moderns, moderns have sort of put it away. We, we, I'm not kidding, but we have created a culture in which people believe that the highest good is self-sufficiency. You get along, you get independent, you make your wealth, you, you become successful. If those are the things that have happened, who needs God? If you're self-sufficient, why in the world would you need God? All of the people in the libation bearers recognize their dependence on the gods. You all hear that? No. Say again, Dr. King. I think all of the people in um, the play recognize their dependence on the gods. They can't, they can't, they, they know something's wrong, they know something needs to be done, what needs to be done is pretty awful. Um, they need, they know, they're dependent on the gods, they need permission, they need help, they need direction. Um, sort of like me. Hmm? Sort of like me. All of us. Um. Uh, Bob? Yeah. You know, when you were talking about prayer, um, I, you know, it really, it really touches me, and it, and I can relate to what you were saying because, um, like the pandemic, my husband and I, we don't go out to mass, but we we do daily mass at church, and we say the rosary every day. Um, and, uh, like this morning when I sat down to say my private prayers, it's, it's like developing this relationship with God that I look forward to as much as a relationship, um, even much more, and I'm at much more peace than yeah. with a relationship with a good friend, which I, I enjoy my relationships with them. And, you know, over the years, uh, you know, 
through this relationship with God comes this um, understanding of, of trust because he's been there um, for our, my husband, myself, family. And, and you know, and all the hard Everything. times. All the good Everything. Times. Um, and so you're right. I mean, you come to the point in your life and it's, you know, uh, at 77, it's much more real than it was for me at 27. Yeah. But it was an ongoing process. And uh, I don't know if it is for other people. You know, I look around and, and I think that, you know, it is a journey and God is leading. And uh, he brings you to that. You know, in the Bible, we, my husband and I took a Bible class. And when we were studying the Bible... The, the uh, Israelite, well, yeah, the Israelites going through the Bible. When things were rough, they needed God and they prayed. Mm -hmm. When good, yeah. they didn't forget to pray. They forget to say thank you. <laughs> right. I I always laugh at that episode in the New Testament when Christ heals the ten. Right. <laughs> oh God! I just I always shake my head. And one kind of, and he says, "Where were the other?" You know, it just anyway. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I think, I think this is a process. Uh, or, no, I don't know for other people, but I know for myself when I look at myself. And I, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I don't feel like it's something that I have done for me. I think it's God who has done something, um, led and guided and with loved. You. With you. Yeah. Just where I'm at. Just to go back and pick, because you said earlier, I think you're right, Bob. This is not about my being right. I'm trying to read this play and, you know, bring out what I think is its meaning. Because I'm going back to my comment to Mark that I'm sorry that the modern, I think one of the failings of the modern world is that we've lost a tragic view of things. And there's something to be said for the help it can give us by going back and look at this. But... Um, I think it's true of the play. Fred, you got a question. I, I want to get back to the play here, but are you a comment, something? I, I just had a comment to Mark's question. It seems to me that one of the reasons that they were praying all the time is that there were so many gods. You'd be you know, thinking that you're doing the will of one, and in the process you you aggravate the other. <laughs> right, I mean, right. Case in point, and it can be a serious problem right because here these guys are all about to go sailing off because they think zeus told them to and in the course of getting to the port where they're going to ship off they kill a rabbit to eat right how are they supposed to know it's right right you know so right. they 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 you know they irritate artemis and the next thing you know one of them's asking for his <laughs> daughter's life i mean yeah i'd be praying all the time too if I was trying to <laughs> so you know just just yeah. Just to think. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. Well, one thing too, Bob. I thought that in Greek mythology, a lot of of uh, the Greeks, uh, the gods were a projection of themselves. Yeah. Hold no. Here, listen. I want to. I want to get back to the because there's a lot here touching on our faith, and everybody's got questions. Lots of moderns will t skeptics. The modern rationalist is going to respond to the Greek world exactly with that observation. They're going to say the God, that's a modern a modern psychologist, modern rationalist, is going to say all the gods are, are mere projections. As a matter of fact, one of the lines in Virgil, for those of you who've 
got, you know, I don't know how long it's been since you've done Virgil, but when the two men, you know, go out on that exposition that it corresponds to the Night Raid and the Iliad, one of them, the young, I think it's the younger one, says to the older, is this really real? Are all these projections of men? So they were aware of this stuff back then, but it's so clear. I mean, a modern's going to read it that way, or lots of moderns are. That's not true. The gods have an objective reality for Homer. That's absolutely true. To, to pick up Fred's point, one of the reasons Odysseus was such an image of such a good virtue is that he did not take the gods for granted. If you look at all of his adventures, he's encountering people everywhere who take them for granted. The, the Cyclops say, we don't work, or Zeus will take care of us, we can ignore him, you know. They violate the, the rights of hospitality when Odysseus comes into the cave. They're violating Zeus. They're too presumptuous. All, almost all the characters in that work distinguish themselves from Odysseus in their presumption. Odysseus is not praying to the gods all the time. He does not do that. But he, he never takes the gods for granted. Or if he does, he's going to pay in a minor way. I think he does in minor ways. So the answer isn't always just praying for Homer. You know, human beings have work. They're supposed to get on and do what they're doing. But one of the differences between those heroes and the rest of the characters is this question of presumption. People ignore the gods, take them for granted. The, the man who doesn't take them for granted is more likely to have the help of the gods. He turns to them. Athena is his guide. Athena is Achilles' guide. The one god that is most attached to those two men, those two heroes, is Athena. And remember, she's the dual goddess. She's the goddess of wisdom, and she's a fighter. Homer's instinctive response to the world is, we're all engaged in a battle, but we need the help of the gods. There's something in us that's transcendent. Um, remember, the, the name of our church in our time is the church militant. There's three aspects to the church, the porch, the church militant, and the church triumphant. Here on earth, as long as we're alive, we're alive. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. We're supposed to be resisting evil, fighting it, doing what we can to answer evil. That's our call here in the world. Here, let me go on. Let me go on if I can. I, I just want to, um, we don't, I want to get to these questions, so I'm going to skip a lot of the reading, but you know, when Orestes comes, he prays, he puts the lock there, Electra comes out, she sees it, and she says, something happened. This is on page 96, 97. She says on 97, towards the bottom, Almighty herald of the world above, the world below, Hermes, Lord of the dead, help me. One of the reasons they keep praying to Hermes is because he's the Lord of the dead. He, he takes Ted. He's the messenger when he takes them there. Lord, help me, announce my prayers to the charmed spirits underground who watch over my father's house. What's the word I'm looking for? It's the call of the dead, the past. Human, this is Odysseus, it's Achilles. We can't ignore, what's the word I'm looking for? The obligations to the past. It has a claim on us. Uh, you know, Lent begins. From dust you came to dust you so return. We came from the earth, we go back to the earth. Out of the earth we came. We honor the earth. It's where the dead go. 
the dead have a claim on us. Um, tell earth herself, she's fecund. So why the images of the gods of the earth are with Demeter, Ceres. They're feminine. Tell earth herself who brings all things to birth, who gives them strength and gathers their big yield unto herself at last. I myself pour these lustral waters to the dead and speak and call upon my father. Pity me. Pity your own Orestes. How shall we be lords in our house? We have been sold and go as wanderers. They've been disinherited. Orestes has been denied his place. Um, he comes to avenge his father, but he also comes to um, reclaim his possession, both of them. Turn to page 111. Up until this point, this is absolutely crucial for the play. Up until this point, it's, it's pretty clear from everything that Orestes says that he's still wavering. He's had a call. It's a divinely appointed task, just like Achilles, Odysseus. It's a divinely appointed task. He has to do something the gods have asked him. Apollo's made it clear if he doesn't avenge his father, he's going to die. It will be a punishment for not doing what he should. He can't let his father... Oh, I remember what I wanted to tell you earlier. When Telemachus comes to Menelaus' house, what's Helena's response, Helen's response, to sorrows, the dead. How does she want to deal with the pains of memory, of recalling the dead? What drugs. does she want to do? Drugs. She wants to take drugs. What's Telemachus's response? <clears throat> if he takes drugs, what's going to happen to his efforts to find his father? Or what, let's say, what would have happened to Orestes if his response to his father's death was drugs? What is our country doing right now? God, with memories, it tears down statues, it does everything can get rid of, and we are a drug-infested people. We do everything we can to dissociate ourselves from the burdens of the past. We, we think of ourselves as progressive. This is Dostoevsky's world. We think of ourselves as progressive. If we just keep going, we will perfect ourselves. Please, somebody explain to me how we're going to do that on drugs. <laughs> oh, God. Helen's answer to the problem is taking drugs. The lotus eaters, what did they offer? That's the first adventure Odysseus came to. What did they offer? The lotus eaters. I think it's marijuana plants or drug plants, something. The easiest way to deal with sorrows is to drink or take drugs. Can I have wine, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we've got in this young tender couple both of them are suffering tremendously their father's dead um, Orestes has got um, this divinely appointed task and here, here he's making it clear up until this point he's equivocating he's going back and forth he knows that if he doesn't do it, um, event, um, Apollo will take vengeance on him. He'll be punished. Um, and he's not sure that he'll go, go through with it. This, that's his state. I, we don't have time to go through all the lines, but that's his state. Um, on page 111, 110, if we can go there. 
at the top of 110, Father, O King, who died no kingly death, I ask the gift of lordship at your hands to rule your house. He's the next in line. He should step into his father's place. I too, my father, ask of you such grace as this, to murder Agistos with strong hand and then go free. It's only in killing them that they'll earn their freedom and take their place. So shall our memory have the fears that men honor and custom. Otherwise, when feasts are gay and portions burn for the earth, you shall be there and none give heed. He will be forgotten as a father. I too out of my own full dowership shall bring libations for my bridal from my father's house. You almost can't read a line. I mean, go back to Mark's comment. You almost can't read a page and not come across um, um, a prayer, um, an allusion to the Father. O earth, let my Father emerge to watch me fight. Persephone grants still the wonders of success. Orestes, think of that bath father where you strip. They can't have a thought. They're carrying their Father with everything they do. Think of the casting net that they contrive for you. Orestes, they caught you like a beast in toils, no bronze smith made. Electra, rather hid you in shrouds that were thought out in shame. Electra, the next page, line five, or one, 111, line 500. Hear one more cry, Father, for me. It is my last. Your nestlings huddle sleepily at your tome, look forward and pity them, female and the male strain alike. Do not wipe out this seed of the Pelopidae, the from Pelops. Remember, it went from Tantalus to Pelops to um, Atreus. Don't wipe out that line. This is exactly what goes on in the Old Testament. Father Abraham will, everything that God did to call him out be fulfilled. Because we know that God called the Jews out for a mission that was more universal, that would involve all peoples but it was through the male line. Abraham, Jacob, David, Christ. <clears throat> so though you died, you shall not be dead. For when a man dies, children are the voices of his salvation. Afterwards, the only thing that keeps a father alive in the world is their children holding him with them. Like corks upon the net, and the, you know, the, the, the use of net is um, there's double here. It's the nets on water, but it's also the nets that trapped um, Agamemnon um, when they killed him. Like corks upon the net, those hold the drenched in flaxen meshes, and they will not drown. Hear us then. Our complaints are for your sake, and if you honor this, our argument, you save yourself. The chorus, none can find fault with the length of this discourse you drew out to show honor to a grave and fate unwept before. The rest is action. Since your heart is set this way, now you must strike and prove your destiny. Orestes. So, but I am wandering from my strict course when I ask why she sent these libations. It's she, I mean, I, I mean, all of you would have to have Hamlet on your mind. I mean, I've read it more times. One of the complaints about Hamlet, and I think it's a misreading, is that he thinks too much. He's carrying everything of the past. He has to think everything through. He's so modern. That's not modern. One of the characters of Orestes is he's thinking because he's caught. Imagine yourself, imagine all of you for a minute, get out of this police state. There's no police state around to do our work. 
We have to do something to avenge, and it's going to, emotionally, it's going to rack us. Would any of you go into that without racking your head in thoughts? Should I, should I not? What about this? I mean, if anything, our thinking would help us to get out of it. We keep thinking because it delays it. Yeah? We all know that. Very often we, <laughs> oh, lots of people, our daughter said this a couple weeks ago, saying we overthink things all the time. It's a way of getting out of acting. But I'm not wandering from my strict course when I ask why she sent these libations, for what cause she acknowledged too late, a crime for which there is no cure. Here he's wondering about what her, what her motives are. You should be acting. This I fail to understand. The offerings are too small for the act done. Pour out all your possessions to atone. One act of blood, you waste your work. It's all useless, reason says. Explain this to me, for I would learn it if you know. I think he's... I think this is several years since she committed the, the murder. And the question is, why has she waited so long to offer libations? It's as if she's only just begun to feel guilty for something she did years earlier. Then the chorus said, I, this is the top of 112, I know, child, I was there. It was the dream she had, the godless woman, had been shaken in the night by floating terrors when she sent these offerings. Go down. She told me herself she dreamed she gave birth to a snake. She was feeding the child at the breast, and the breast, the, the, um, the child, um, um, when, when it was sucking, bit at her nipple. How was her nipple not torn by such a beastly thing? It was. The creature drew in blood along with the milk. The chorus, she woke screaming out of the sleep. This is crucial to the whole play. She woke screaming out of her sleep, shaking with fear as torches kindled all about the house, one of the blind dark that had been on them to comfort the queen. So now as she sends these morning offerings to be poured and hopes they are medicinal for her disease, Orestes, crucial for the whole play. But I pray to the earth and to my father's grave that this dream is for me and that I will succeed. See, I divine it. It's prophetic. I divine it, and it coheres all in one piece. If this snake came out of the same place whence I came, if she wrapped it in robes as she wrapped me, and if its jaws gaped wide around the breast that suckled me, and if it stained the intimate milk with an outburst of blood so that for fright and pain she cried aloud it follows then this is a rational argument if this then this it follows then that as she nursed this hideous thing of prophecy she must be cruelly murdered I turn snake to kill her this is what the dream portends now I'm going to claim this is the most important and it's just words Mark this is the most important passage in the play. Some of you may disagree. Why, why, why is this such an important moment for Orestes? And what's the significance of it? More important question, what's the significance of it? What happens at this moment? And it's with words. It's with words. Is that, I mean, is that when he really realized he was going to kill his mother? I wouldn't put it that way. I'm going to avoid that, Mark, but Fred, go ahead. 
Uh, it, well, it's 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 similar to what Mark said, but to me, I think he was up to that point. He was still struggling with the decision, and he sees that as almost a foretelling that what he is contemplating is the right thing to do. So to me, it kind of moves him over the line to 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 go through with. You know what? He, what's been building up all all the way up to this point? It's the taking of the auspices. Go ahead, Don. It's the taking of the auspices. It's the confirmation of what the gods have told him to do. You guys all remember that term. I want to get into this for a minute because it's just, and then I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a couple more questions, and I want to see if we can pull this play together. Do you all remember what taking of the auspices is? This is so important to me in our time. If you're, if you're in a rationalistic world, if you believe that reason is adequate, our approach to the world, I think most of you would agree with this, is the, what we're confronted in in the business world are problems to be solved. I think most of you would agree. And if you live in a world in which there are no gods, then the answer to your problem would always involve reason. I mean, get a group together and hash it out and see what reasons you come up with. But you wouldn't stand in any action you took waiting for a divine revelation. You wouldn't believe it. You'd, you'd rely on your own rational powers of reason, your own rational powers. Um, so one of the things we're, we're witnessing here is a struggle between two orders. I think what Fred said, and it goes to Mark's question, because it or Mark's comment, goes right to the point, and I think the depth of this is extraordinary and profound, so I want to take a second. What is a taking of the auspices? This has been something with us since the Iliad. What is the taking of the auspices? Do you guys remember? I think, I think isn't that when you, when you receive a divine revelation? It, it's not the receiving of the revelation. It's what happens after it. It's the confirmation. The confirmation. Um, a number of times, you know, in the Iliad, um, um, Hester, Hector kept getting on Polydamus for reading the birds. You know, when they went out on the plane and Hester wouldn't go back and Polydamus read the bird signs, you know, it was an eagle reaching back and attacking something or, and, or being attacked by it. And Polydamus would read that and say, we shouldn't do this. And when we get to the end, when Hector, Hector faces the battle with um, Achilles, one of the things he's, that's, he's most embarrassed about is not listening to Polydamus because Polydamus kept giving signs that something would happen. There would be a sign and they would wait for a confirmation. Something would happen. So very often something is given in the natural world, an omen an auspice, something. It could be a simple thing. But the question of whether it had a divine meaning would wait on what happened to confirm it. It's called taking of the auspices. You'd, um, so numerous times in the Aeneid, Aeneid will be like seeing the pig with the sows. He would see it, but he wouldn't know what the meaning of it, what he'd think it was, but he wouldn't be sure unless it was confirmed. The church does it all the time. We've talked about this. People report miracles all the time, but very often people with 
lively imaginations can imagine something. It doesn't mean it necessarily was true, objectively. The church does all it can to investigate miracles to confirm them. Because otherwise you could get in a subjective world where, where people are just really irrational in what they claim. They may be true, but they have to be confirmed. So all of the sightings of Mary had to be confirmed. I, 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 my, I, I sometimes wonder, how many sightings have we not heard about because the church hasn't been able to you know, confirm them? We don't know the answer to that question because we don't hear about them. But it's crucial. It's, it's a way of showing that the world has a way of helping itself to grasp the divine. So it's happening right now, exactly as Fred described it. Um, Orestes has been caught, not quite sure, and then suddenly the chorus comes out and reports a dream that Clytemnestra had that night. So there's two plots, or actually one, one plot, two plots but coinciding. The literal plot of the story actually begins before Orestes comes to the graveyard, right? The play begins with him arriving at the grave. The actual time of the story began that night and we don't get it. We don't get it until the middle of the play when we get a report from the chorus about Clytemnestra's dream. And then we're taken back to something that happened in the night before the actual plot began. So right in the middle of the play, Aeschylus is taking us to a dream and making it the centerpiece of the play. Because of the, it's on the basis of that dream that the prophecy of Apollo is confirmed. And now Orestes knows what he has to do. So what's the significance of that for the play? What's the significance of that act that for the play? Is everybody following what I just said? Any, if, does that... Does that mean he was looking for an excuse? Because I would sit there and say he didn't have enough. He didn't have enough gumption to go do it on his own, so he needed an excuse. Well, it's not an excuse, but it's an encouragement. Well, wait. Let's take Mark. Why? Why isn't it an excuse? I mean, it's an objective evidence. Let's take Mark. Well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do well. He was struggling whether or not he should do it on his own. On a, of his own volition, he could not come to a conclusion. So he needed somebody to push him over the edge. So he was looking for an excuse to do it or not do it. Okay, what's wrong with Mark's language? Why is this not just an somebody? Why is this not an objective truth instead of an excuse? What evidence is there? In, it, let's take Mark's question: Is 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 this an excuse for arresting because he just didn't have the courage and he wanted an out, or does this have an objective reality and it confirms Apollo's? Prophecy to him, whatever you know, whatever you receive. Which is it? How do we know? What's the evidence in the text? Tracy, what's the evidence in the text? Timing. Go ahead, Doug. So the timing is important because Oedipus arrives. Confused and Oedipus, Orestes. Uh, Orestes, sorry. Um, um, a little reluctant 
to take his mother's life, understandably. Um, but he's got um, Apollo telling him he has to, and he's still nervous about it. But the dream happened before he got there. So it's not like it was an excuse. It was something that happened before he came expressing his concerns and his reluctance. And it confirmed Apollo. So now he doesn't now he doesn't have to worry about whether he's misunderstood Apollo. Um, it's, it's clear from the dream that Apollo's request, command, is real. Command, yeah. Wait, I want to take this up a little bit. Mark, just, um, it, I mean, it's your language again. But it's, it's really clear from the, wait, I want to make a couple of things really clear here because it's, it's, you know how important the holes are for me that, we learn to put a hole together because when we're dealing with parts, we screw things up. Um, there's no evidence in the play to suggest that Orestes wants an excuse. None. None. He knows he has to go through this. He's serious. Um, he's supported in his efforts with Electra. In fact, if anything, he's already gotten support from her by her prayers, their prayers together. The fact that they're joined, the hair, the footprints. and um, So he's not looking for excuse. He's received a command from the gods to do something, but he's human and nervous because the cost of it is going to be extraordinary. So he's not looking forward to this at all. He's committed to it. He came there with that intent. He's not looking for an out. He's not looking for excuses. So it's just a, you know, a question of you're using that kind of language and looking at it that way. The other thing is this. Everything in the play turns on that moment. One of his questions is, why after all, the, either I, it's either three or six years, three or six, seven years, since Agamemnon was murdered. It's been several years at least. Why this moment? Why are the libation bearers, the women, coming out now to pour these? I, we hear stories of women who have had abortions, who several years later start waking up with nightmares. I mean, the, I don't know, to, I mean, I, I, I want to be really careful. The power of denial in the human soul that we cover things up. We don't want to, but the the subconscious keeps. Here in the middle of this play, years after she killed Agamemnon, she's struck by guilt. She has a dream. It's a dream, which means the unconscious, possibly the gods. I don't want to make any. I want to be careful about what I'm saying here. Comes to her and reveals this moment. The interesting thing is while it expresses a guilt on her part, it becomes an affirmation from the gods for Orestes not to have any doubts anymore to go ahead. Because now he's got a confirmation from something outside himself. It's a part of the action. So this um. this wait one second. This moment is crucial, it's central to the play for all sorts of reasons. But can, wait on, wait, if you can, Kathy, I think Fred has had his hand up for a second. Fred, go ahead. Oh, me or Fred? I think you. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I, the only thing I would add to that is the, the, the clarity and the detail of the dream. I mean, it, you know, when one, when one dreams, it, it it's often fuzzy. 
and and it, you know you try to recall it afterwards and it's it's hard to do it's a good the, point the, yeah. the level of detail and yeah. specificity of the dream yeah it's also you know would, would lead one to believe that there's there's more to it that it's an inspired if you will yeah the, i would have used the word illumination i mean cuz it's you're right there's such a a clarity of light you know and a, it's it's a powerful dream it's just a powerful Kathy, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm not for sure that I can come out of a Christian world, you know, with um, you know vengeance and and you know I it, I'm I'm not for sure I'm, I'm being able to relate to the Greek world. But when you were talking about this moment in time, if you bring it into Christianity, the word I think is discernment of spirit. Is the what? what Discernment. Oh yeah, dis right. Yeah, yeah. Is that a discern? Okay. Um, <laughs> and when you, you know, that discernment leads you forward. Perfect word, Kathy. Perfect word. I'm having a hard, hard time following because I can't get back, <laughs> back to the gods and the Greeks, and, and because I, I keep wondering. You know, I'm just, I just, I'm not, I'm having a hard time relating. Yeah. Relating. I thought you made a really good relation there, connection. Let me read well, some, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. That's because I went back to, to where I'm at, not where they're at. I took where I'm at and I put it, put it there. Um, yeah, but all of us, all of us. I'm trying to understand and trying to follow and I'm having a really difficult time. Yeah. Two things. I, I'd like to read something from a chapter that I wrote um, um, a while back that that deals specifically with it. Two things I want to bring in here. I want to. Um, I'd like to focus on two things. One is Freud's idea of the unconscious. Okay. You know that Freud's concept of the unconscious was really dark. That what motivated all of it. These are determinisms in the human soul. These are determinants. We can't escape them. We all have them. That's science. It can't be other than it is. This is the law of our nature. According to Freud, According to Freud all, all of us carry within us a desire on the part of the son to kill the father, to overthrow him, to sleep with the mother. There are these polymorphous, perverse sexual instincts in all of us, and we want to act them out. We've got all these mechanisms we use to disguise them, repress them. You know, therapy is meant to get us to them. So... All therapists who are Freudian are, want to, are going to take us, if we're sitting in a chair, to that belief. That's what we're trying to get to. Um, Freud had no sense of the spirit. I, I don't believe his, his own theories. I, I, to me, they're Manichaean, um, and they're too legalistic. Um, Freud had some sense of the importance of the unconscious, but if we read poets, we know that the poets had all of this long book, Thousands of years before Freud, and I think the poets are closer to the truth of things than Freud. One of the things that we learn from Dante, and you know from our reading of Hell, how horrible the unconscious is, that in the depths of our soul, those are the sins we all harbor. That's the point of Dante. We've got all the sins of the leopard, the lion, you know, the she-wolf. All of those are in us. Dante believes that it's only by learning to see them, and through God's help, 
that we can get beyond them. The whole effort of purgatory is to undo them, you know, to, to deal with them. I, I think he's showing that our life here should consist of a purgatory. We should be doing what we can to get rid of those sins here. What Freud did not understand is the spiritual unconscious or grace. One of the reasons Dante's work is called the Divine Comedy instead of a tragedy or the hell is because it's comic. It's funny. It's frightening, but it's not tragic. The people in hell are there because they're stupid. They're foolish. There's no none of this tragic nobility in what goes on in, in the inferno. And moreover, it's comic because Dante's going through it. That's not happening in um, Aeschylus. Dante's there. Why is he there? Because Mary went to get Lucia, Lucia went to get Beatrice, Beatrice went to get Virgil, and Virgil goes down to get Dante. That is, there's this luminous, this light from the other world that's helping him to see himself. So everything, he faints, he knocks rocks down, he sinks boats. I mean, his presence there casts a comic light. It shows how stupid the people in hell are. Remember, the principle of hell is the place where those lose the good of the intellect. All the people in hell argue. All they do is argue. They think they're all right. What we know is that the one thing is about them that is true of all of them is they think they understand something with they don't. They don't know that they don't know. They keep acting like what they're doing is right. And it's silly. It's foolish. How foolish they are. So there's this spiritual unconscious working that Freud had no notion about. Okay? I, is that clear? Just for a second. In the middle of this play, a dream occurs. It's a light from another world. It's a dream. Fred was right on. It's, there's a luminous clarity to it. And, it's, and it directs the whole play. The libation bearers are sent out. There's this engagement between Orestes and Electra in the chorus, all the women who are coming out to pour the libations, and this dream. And in this dream, a light is given to Orestes that helps confirm the doubts that he still has. From that point on, he's committed. Because you know what's going to happen next. He goes immediately to the door, summons Agisthus and Clytemnestra. He's going to kill them. That's the way the play is going to end. Okay? So there's two things. One is this notion of the spiritual unconscious, that there's this light, according to Christianity, deeper than the darkness. I just want that to be perfectly clear. Dante is one of the best examples we've got. This is another. Is everybody clear in the middle of this play? So now, with that, let me just read that. This is what... Because it's it's it tends to be clear, and I want to I want to just emphasize this if you can. So what happens in the middle of this play is that this goes to Catherine's point is that a word is given, not an action goes to Mark's point, but it turns it on its head. A word is given that brings a light to Orestes. It's through a word, not an act. Okay, now what's the importance of that word? The plot begins with Orestes looking on at a number of slave women moving in procession towards his father's grave to offer libations on behalf of Clytemnestra, who, guilt-ridden, 
wants to do all she can to ward off evil spirits. The actual sequence of events, however, began shortly before when the queen was wakened from her sleep by a dream that she gave birth to a snake, which turned and bit her when she tried nursing it. When Orestes first arrives, he knows nothing of his mother's dream and only learns of it in the middle of the story when the chorus, these women, the libation bearers, tells him that the snake tore his mother's nipple, drawing blood along with the milk and forcing her to wake up screaming out of her sleep, shaking with fear. To appease her husband's ghost and all of the underworld murdered victims, Clytemnestra sent out the libation bearers, and it's their shuddering and cries of terror that greet Orestes when he first arrives. The report of the dream is pivotal to the play's action, for it radically changes, or turns, turns, a metanoia, a turn, a change. Radically changes, turns Orestes' stance towards his task. See, he says, I divine it. It's the one I just read. I divine it. I see. He describes the dream. She cried aloud. It follows then. It's a rational conclusion. This is like St. Thomas. It's a scholastic. We're not in a pagan world. This is a world of reason. It follows then that as she nursed this hideous thing of prophecy, she must be cruelly murdered. I turn snake to kill her. That is what the dream portends. The prophecy of Apollo has been confirmed. Now the action will turn. Up until this point, he's had questions. The two qualities of the dream are worth noting. One is the irresistible sweep of the reasoning that drives Orestes' reading. The it follows then conveys the rational certainty of a medieval scholastic or a modern empiricist making a scientific demonstration. We're in a world of reason. We're in the natural order, not a supernatural. It's also Orestes' use of the t word turn. The sign that he's been turned into an agent of justice. I turn snake to killer. A whole action that has its roots in a mythic past and that Orestes has carried within himself is suddenly turned, given a new direction that will radically affect him. And the course of history, here's my point, for it will lead to the founding of Athens as the just city in the conclusion of the trilogy. The point here, however, is that the words conveying the dream represent a key moment for the entire trilogy. Not just one play, all of them. Because remember, we're not just reading each play as a whole. We're trying to do that. We're trying to read the whole of the trilogy and see its whole action. If we don't see that, we don't see it. The only figure who gets close to seeing holes right now is Cassandra. And Arrest, or Aeschylus, the poet. He's the one who... The chorus sees it simply as an omen, a poor piece of literary criticism. They don't see the significance of the dream, do they? It doesn't turn them. They're, in one sense, I'm being ironic, they're like bad literary critics. They only see a part. They don't understand it. Poor piece of literary criticism because it lacks any sense of holds, any awareness of the horrific task Orestes has been given by Apollo or of what he will do with it. Orestes, however, sees it from both inside and out and as an answer to Apollo's oracle. Significantly, two events separated in time are brought together in the poetry in the poetry to confirm Orestes' original divination. Clytemnestra's dream actually takes place in real time just before the women process out. Shortly afterwards, in the poetic time of the plot, however, 
It's given an entirely different meaning. It doesn't mean for her what it means for Orestes. It doesn't mean for the chorus what it means for him. He sees something nobody else does. That's what we're asked to see reading it. When Orestes hears the account, he takes it as a confirmation of the divine task assigned by Apollo, a sure indication from within the temporal order of a word given by the gods from their order outside of time. So, Kathy, bear with me, if you will, for a bit. You know that one of my tasks, I mean, one of the things I've taken on is to see if we can't find Christ. Because God was always at work before came Christ. Do we have intimations of Christ here, the word, bringing a light to fulfill an action that won't really be fulfilled until the humanities. <clears throat> so I'm going to suggest that there's something intimating Christianity in what's taking place at this moment. Um, <clears throat> when Orestes hears it, he takes it as a confirmation, a sure indication from within the temporal order of a word given by the gods from their order outside of time. Ironically, it's Clytemnestra's own words that give Oresti the go-ahead with Apollo's task. Her words are the proximate cause of his action, and the turn that they effect isn't confined to this play. It represents a shift from the horrible disorders of a distant past into something entirely new. The full significance of this new thing can only properly be appreciated if we see it in terms of the two cities involved in the trilogy. The shift from Argos to Athens doesn't simply reflect a jingoistic prejudice on the part of Aeschylus, who was Athenian. The turn from Argos to Athens lay bare two very different views of man and the possibilities for realizing his potential. One undermines man's potential, cripples it. The other helps to realize it, to fulfill the goodness that's inherent in man. The old order of Argos is tribal in character and identified with a curse that was passed on from Tantalus, Pelops, and their descendants. Athens represents a turning away from that old tribal dynastic way of life with all of its inherent tendencies towards the bloodline, ethnic racial, ethnic racial pride, blindness, wounds, revenge, to one that is more universal and democratic, really one more Catholic, and fully human, more in tune what a virtuous and detached reason can do with the help of the gods. What's going to happen in the humanities cannot help, cannot happen without Athena's direct help. She will be involved directly, and once again, as in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's Athena there at the end, the fighter, the goddess of wisdom. One can look at the two cities and see only that two cities but it's impossible to see the real difference between them without seeing that Athens is the product of a word spoken that brings a timeless transcendent pattern into the world and makes it real in time. So I would suggest that reading, but here to close because we're past time. So I think what happens in the middle of the play, it's interesting, I mean Mark's comment, nothing happens. A dream is described, and yet that dream, a word, that dream 
turns that whole mythic action from Tantalus around. What's going to happen from here to the end is going to radically transform, transform that past. So I want to read the last lines of the of the humanities. You remember humanities? I mean the libation birds. Clytemnestor Aeschylus or Aegislus is killed. Clytemnestor comes out. He and Pilates, his friend, take her in and kill her, and then come out, and then present themselves to the chorus. Now the chorus standing there watching Orestes coming out after having killed Aegisthus and his mother. Okay, here's what happens at the end. Orestes, um, the, the chorus, do not therefore bind your mouth to foul speech. Keep no evil on your lips. You liberated all the Argive cities when you lopped the heads off of these two snakes. They the women, the women absolutely approve of what just happened. Orestes, no. Women who serve this house, they come like gorgons. They wear robes of black and they are wreathed in a tangle of snakes. I can no longer stay. He's suddenly being possessed by what we would call demons today. He's calling them the Furies. So these women are suddenly crowded. The chorus, the consists of women, is watching on, but they can't see the Furies. Chorus, Orestes, dearest to your father of all men, what fancies world you hold? Do you not give way fear? Orestes, these are no fancies of affliction. They are clear and real and here, the bloodhounds of my mother's hate. So this past that we've been talking about is immediately with it. Imagine a kid today killing his mother and feeling justified in doing it. Wipe his hands, all, gun, all done? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is the blood still wet upon your hands that makes this shaken turbulence be thrown upon you. They wonder what he's doing. They think he's losing it. There's no furies there. Ah, Lord Apollo, how they grow and multiply, repulsive for the blood drops of their dripping eyes. We're watching a man become overwhelmed. We would say he's going mad today. Of course, there's one way to make you clean. Let Loxius, Apollo, touch you and set you free from these disturbances. <clears throat> they still don't see them. Orestes, you cannot see them, but I see them. I'm driven from this place. I can stay here no longer. He's told to go in the page 130 before that. He's told to go to Apollo's shrine to be cleansed. So he leaves at this moment to go to the gods for cleansing. Because right now he is... I mean, it's just to me it's a frightening to imagine what a person would be going through. The course ends with these words. This is how the libation ends. Good luck go with you then, and may the God look on you with favor and guard you in kind circumstance. Here on this house of the kings, the third storm has broken with wind from the inward race, the spiritual interior that we all carry, and gone its course. The children were eaten. There was the first affliction, the curse of Thyestes. Remember, from Tantalus to Pelops, and then it was um, Atreus, um, killing the children of Thyestes and feeding them to him, and Thyestes putting a curse in the house. So the curse goes from Atreus to his two sons, Agamemnon and Menelaus. The children were eaten. There was the first affliction, the curse of Thyestes. Next came the royal death, when a man and lord of, a, of Achaean armies went down killed in the bath. That's Agamemnon. He's dead. Third is for the Savior. He came. <coughs> 
Shall I call it that? Or death? Catherine, just a savior. And the, and the course doesn't know whether to call it a saving or a death. Right. So put that forward in, to our Christian world. Third is for the Savior. He came. Shall I call it that or death? Where is the end? Where shall the fury of fate be still to sleep, be done with? What's going to happen now? You can imagine the people in Athens watching this play <laughs> with the course ending with these words. Where is it going to end? Who would not want to be there the next year to see how this, this, trilogy, this trilogy would end? So this is how the libation bears ends. The question we're left with going to the Eumenides. Orestes is going mad. He's being attacked by furies. He is absolutely unsettled. He's overwhelmed. And the chorus is asking, what's going to happen? How's it going to end? So here's the question I want to ask everybody to close. Sorry, we're so late. You've got these two opposing powers, both divine, in, or extremes. Apollo, who's the god, of, the god of light, who brings light. That's his nature. He heals, he brings light. But we know that the light he brought took Agamemnon, or I mean Orestes, to this act. On the other hand, you've got these dark thonic powers of the earth, the furies, um, they're like Medusa. To look in them is terrifying, and they're swarming in Orestes right now, attacking him. The course doesn't see them, he does. You've got these two powers, light and dark. And we know from the curse that it's gone on from family to family to family. What's going to happen to reconcile these two powers? How does that happen? That's the reading of the humanity. That's where we're going next week. Okay? So let's stop here. I'm, I'm already, unless any of you has any, any of you have any comments or questions or anything to offer right now? The only thing that you mentioned uh, Freud, and when you did, it reminded me of something I heard Carl Jung say, and it's applicable. And what he said was, unless you have the courage to look at the evil within, it will rise up and destroy you. Yeah, boy. I think Jung was, I, I, I really admire Jung. I think Freud had so much wrong, but Jung just had just a lot of wisdom to him. Um, oh, when you were, were talking about Freud, and when you were talking at that point, I know that thought came to me, and even with, and I can't pronounce his name correctly, I mean, it seems to me that that's where he's at. I mean, he's looking at what's within. Orestes? Yes. Yeah, right. Tracy, any thoughts? Last thoughts? I don't believe you. Mark, you were shaking your head and laughing. What's going on with you? <laughs> we're good. Good, yeah. <laughs> we are. I hope. I pray for us, for our goodness. I mean that really seriously. Fred? Francis? What do you guys... Uh... Well, I, I, we finished the book, so we're, we're ready to move on to part three. Yeah. Yeah, so am I. I I've been looking, you know, I, I didn't put this on our schedule years ago when we started. I, I don't know why, and I'm so sorry I didn't, but I'm so glad we're going back. Honestly, I'm just so sorry. I think our modern world is worse for not having this, you know, to, um, 
And now to see what it will take to answer it, to go on to the humanities, because the humanities, humanities, Eucharist, Eucharist, Thanksgiving, the humanities are the blessed ones, that a blessing is coming. We're going to find the same thing with Oedipus. Oedipus is going to blind himself. He's going to kill his father, sleep with his mother. There's Freud. No, no, I don't, no, that's what Freud did with it. No, that's Sophocles. But Sophocles, the, we'll, we'll spend one day on Oedipus Rex. I'm trying to just limit this to one day, you know, for, per play. We'll do Oedipus Rex in one play, and then we'll do Oedipus at Colonus. In Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus becomes blessed. The man who killed his father, slept with his mother, is um, received by the gods. So these pagans had this extraordinary capacity to see the courage to face evil, and see this extraordinary goodness come out of it. So, um, you guys have a good week. Um, keep us in your prayers, please. Remember to keep um, Nikki in your prayers and everybody else. And I hope you guys have a good week. And I'm looking forward to finishing the Oristine with you guys. It's been a special thing for me. So, you guys have a good week, okay? Thank you, Bob. Bye. Bye.